what is the role of an occupational therapist within a critical care environment? So I think occupational therapists are uniquely trained. We can address the patient's physical needs, cognitive needs and psychosocial needs. So within the critical care environment, the standard patient has occupational deprivation in every facet of their life. So it's a very complex, broad role for us. But to summarise it, I suppose we look at, obviously, rehabilitation for these patients, early rehabilitation, focus on prevention of secondary complications, so avoidance of things like delirium, pressure injuries, contractures, and we're enablers of functional engagement. So trying as best we can to modify the environment of an intensive care to facilitate some sort of independence and functional engagement with these patients. I think you've hit it on the head, Lauren. It's um, about getting in there early, finding out what their baselines are, what motivates them so we can engage them as soon as possible in, in activities that are purposeful for them. There's some kind of literature out there saying that if we can start kind of early mobilisation, early engagement in ADLs, we can reduce levels of delirium. As we know, delirium is a huge factor of increasing length of stay on ICU and increasing uh, inpatient length of stay. Um, and also kind of um, causing kind of harm long-term in engagement in the community. We will come as a holistic package. We will think about body and mind engagement for these patients. And it's not just a one-stop kind of hit. It's about kind of long-term planning as well. So what will these patients need long-term when they go back into the community? And what will life look like for them? Lauren, you said that everybody who comes through intensive care has got a degree of an occupational deficit. Would you be able just to expand on what you mean by that? Obviously, occupational therapy is based on occupational science, um, which centres around looking at a person's ability to engage in the occupations that are important to them, purely by being in the restrictive environment of the intensive care. You have enormous occupational deprivation. So these patients are unable to engage in usually all of their usual occupations without some level of assistance. So we're talking about simple self-care occupations, you know, um, getting washed and dressed, brushing your teeth, brushing your hair, all of those sorts of daily things that we do. But also things like relationship occupations. All of a sudden, their role as a father, as a mother, as a brother, as a sister is changed enormously. So working, you know, with the patients and the families to try and get some of their structure back you know, get them re-engaged in those occupations that are really important to them. That's the role of an occupational therapist. So we, you know, have to look at the physical limitations of that, which are usually vast, and fatigue implications, as well as the environment. And I think, you know, delirium is a really key role for occupational therapy, delirium management. And I think you'll be familiar with the NICE guidelines. And, and the majority of that structure is around prevention of delirium because once a patient has it we know that it's so hard to get rid of and it can have so many complications for them you know really long term beyond the intensive care and one of their main prevention strategies for delirium is functional engagement movement function tasks you know having patients oriented having them have structure to their day and that is bread and butter for OTs. And in terms of the sort of the, the functional engagement that you that you do with patients, what sort of things are you getting them doing during the time you spend with them then? Well, I mean it can vary greatly. Obviously, like all rehabilitation, we want to be goal directed. 
So it's really working on what's important for patients. And that can vary person to person. You might have somebody who is very proud of their appearance, that wants to be able to do their normal routine, brush their hair, have a shave. You know, we're talking about patients who sometimes, Gareth, haven't even been able to brush their teeth for six weeks. And doing something like that is an enormous achievement often. So it can be something that we take for granted as like a really small part of our daily life, but it is a big functional step for those patients. But it can be more as well. It can be things like helping patients to get out in a chair, have a meal, get dressed, you know, all the daily functional tasks that we would do. We can help them do an intensive care, obviously, within reason. There's a lot of crossover then between occupational therapy and other aspects of the MDT. Typically, I find with OTs and physios seem to very much approach a patient together rather than in isolation. Is that a fair observation? I think that we complement each other. We can't yeah. work without each other, um, but we, you know, we need each other to get the whole rehab mm. and the whole picture for the patient. And similarly. Our speech and language therapy colleagues, we, we couldn't do it without them either. Um, so I think it's, you know, very much a team approach, but there are big differences in our roles. But for example, we might work together to understand how we can encourage a patient with a cognitive deficit to engage better in their physical rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. So having the two of us together at that time would mean that we're able to look more broadly at the whole picture of the patient. Totally. To have a good MDT approach for this cohort of patients is essential. It's not about one profession. It's not just about a physio. It's not about an OT. It's not about a speech and language therapist. It's not about a nurse or a doctor. We all need to work together for the best for the patient. So we're all going to bring different things to the table. As we know, our patients are the most complicated and the sickest patients in the hospital most of the time. So they need that specialist input from each profession to maximise their potential. What shift does it do with your role when you're going from the acute side on the unit to when they're stepping out of the unit and further on? So I think that we're trying to ensure that from a hospital perspective and a flow perspective and a health economic perspective that we are planning for a patient discharge or, or forward treatment from the minute of first assessment. And that is even in intensive care. So, you know, we're thinking about, is this patient likely to need a specialist consortium bed? How quickly can we do those referrals? When will they be stable enough to us to kind of move those things forward? So, you know, while there is some thought about discharge for those patients in intensive care, I would say that our colleagues, certainly in the acute ward setting, have a far bigger influence on discharge planning probably than we do in intensive care or or that's a far bigger part of their role, I suppose. And I think that that's more to do with the hospital environment than it is necessarily the patient needs. I think because hospitals have such high demand, the occupational therapy role in the acute environment has become more focused on discharge planning. But certainly if we had less speed of turnover in the acute environment, there would be far more time for those therapists to do rehab and to focus on some of those assessments as well. OT in intensive care is probably more similar to our colleagues in subacute environments in the rehab centres. As you sort of said, lots of assessment, lots of kind of multifaceted assessment and rehabilitation as able. 
we see that in our bottle. So we're a small DGH down in South Devon, but we've got a unique team that uh, we will pick up our patients on ICU, we will follow them to the ward, and then we'll follow them out into the community and bring them back to specialist clinics. But kind of an observation, exactly like Lauren said, from our team compared to the ward teams, our team is more focused on their holistic care. So we will do kind of rehab for these patients. Unfortunately, kind of pressures and staff and resources on the wards are just geared up with flow, which is kind of the wrong pathway for our complicated patients. So our service has been unique in that way of being ring fenced. So the patients are going to get continuity through their pathway because we all know that transition from ICU to the ward is really traumatic for our patients because they've gone from a place of full support from one-to-one nursing most of the time. Their bodies let them down. They don't know if it's going to let them down again, and then they've gone to a ward of many. And that can be really scary for patients. So that pathway that we've endorsed really helps that continuity, and it reduces that level of anxiety for our patients. But I must emphasize, like Lauren said, there is a big difference between what you can provide on ICU and what you can provide on the ward as different teams. And again, you've got to appreciate in a tertiary unit, that's going to be really different. Lauren and I were talking about this the other day. Patients are coming from all over the country. How are you going to follow those patients through a pathway that we can in a small DGH? For you, James, obviously your setup is, is a bit different. So for you, when a patient's discharged from intensive care, would the occupational therapist on the ward be taking charge for that patient or would your team be continuing throughout the whole patient's stay? So kind of we screen all of our patients, all the complicated patients, we keep hold of them throughout the whole journey. And our team is a mixed team. So we've got OTs, physios, we've got some generic workers, we've got a fitness instructor. So we're trying to be holistic about kind of what the patient's goals are and what we need and who's the best person to support that. So we're doing that at the front end. We're, we're finding out what is purposeful for them, what are their goals, and who are the best members of the team. And that might be flexible, so it's a fluid system. So one day I might be working on personal care with a patient. The next day, Alice, our physio, might be looking at mobility. And then we might get Lorraine, our fitness instructor, to think about an exercise programme and looking at that transition into the community. Do you think that the ward-based OTs sometimes struggle to grasp some of the complexity of the patients that that come out of our units? I think that is a big challenge. I think often patients in intensive care have multifaceted illnesses or injuries. They then step down to a unit, be it, you know, the cardiac unit or the liver unit or, or whichever. So I think, you know, because we're exposed to that kind of multifaceted patient presentation regularly, we're more familiar with addressing all of those needs. Whereas our colleagues on the wards happily, easily address and focus um, a part of the patient's presentation, but might not be as familiar with, you know, assessing the rest of it. And also, I think it's recognised that patients post-critical care have these critical care illnesses, don't they? Um, you know, so like polyneuropathies and all of those sorts of things that can be quite unfamiliar to other therapists for treating. So I think it definitely is a challenge. I think it's a big challenge for our community colleagues as well. Often these patients discharge early with so many ongoing rehabilitation needs. And I think that it is really challenging. I think the model that James has developed down in Torbay is really unique and wonderful. And they get an incredible key worker structure the whole way through. So that sort of continuity of care 
is bound to be beneficial for the patient. What impact has the COVID pandemic had on your role as an OT? The main challenge initially was looking at risk assessment of staff, so making sure that staff's well-being was appropriate, making sure that they felt safe to go in the environment. What we were finding initially was when do we start our rehabilitation? But what we found was once we had an idea about how to ventilate this cohort of patients, we would start business as usual, really. So we would be going in with um, our colleagues, looking at early mobilisation as soon as possible, engaging patients in functional activities. Main issue that we found initially was that um, humanistic approach. So having masks, goggles, caps on, full gowns, how do we interact with patients? Especially with patients that are delirious, that was quite a challenge. We would go in and support our, our team with proning as well. So again, it's looking at that team ethic and trying to work on that model of supporting each other in a time of crisis, really. But as an occupational therapist, I relished it. I thought it was a really useful time for occupational therapists to be valued in the team because patients were coming out the other side with considerable weakness, uh, considerable fatigue management issues. Lots of patients had delirium. Lots of patients had cognitive deficit as well. We took it as a challenge of making our service more robust and more efficient. There are some natural elements that have been game changers as well. So the use of virtual follow-up for our, our cohort, that's been brilliant because most of these patients are fatigued anyway. They don't want to come back to hospital. So having that ability to talk to them on video call in their own environment where they feel more comfortable has been really refreshing for us. So we kind of do multiple video calls every week now with our patients as part of our follow-up service. And we can do lots of remote work. And we can also triage the patients quicker and more effectively. So we can escalate or de-escalate if need be. It's made us start to think about kind of patient resources as well. So kind of same idea, having resources of, of video exercises, video relaxation, video pacing activity for fatigue fatigue management and giving that kind of responsibility back to the patient about these are the resources I want you to look at them I'm going to ring you again and we're going to talk through it more so it's making sure that we are up to date with kind of resources and IT for our patients for the future. This leads seamlessly onto talking about how the role of an OT is potentially going to change in the future I think that, you know, we are seeing already a trend of more um, occupational therapists in critical care environments, and I think that that will continue to be the case. I think the evidence for early rehabilitation and the knowledge of long-term implications of intensive care is only growing. And with that, the knowledge and understanding of the benefits of early functional engagement, early cognitive and physical rehab is also growing. So I think that we will only see more therapy happening on intensive care And I like to think that the pandemic has supported that as well, but also I like to think that that will filter down to our ward colleagues. And I think that, you know, as we were talking um, about sort of social prescribing and improving patient self-efficacy, I think that the focus will start to shift back towards that. I know flow and hospital pressure is enormous, and there is a big need to discharge patients 
safely and early and effectively. But I think that we need to shift the focus of the role of occupational therapy back to some of our more traditional base looking at occupational deprivation and focusing on that rehab for patients on the ward as well. So I think and I hope that there will be a shift in that direction and we will see more early rehab continuing onto the ward as well. For us to move forward as a profession in critical care, we need to start writing up good practice as well. We need to kind of prove our own evidence base. Uh, We need to engage in research as well. There are areas of a few of us putting stuff together and just getting it out there just to prove. So we've got some evidence base. At the moment, we just haven't got much, have we, Lauren, just to back ourselves up. There's pockets of good practice. But as a profession, we just haven't got any evidence to support us nationally to grow. It's different to when I've had this conversation with, with other specialties. Most of the time, the focus there has always been on sort of on, on resource management. So it's really interesting to hear you talk about the need for the evidence base. My perception of occupational therapy as a, as a specialty is that it feels perhaps a bit more, um, a bit more misunderstood than some of the other members of the MDTs. Do you think that's a fair thing to say? I think that was a very fair thing to say. We often get, oh, you're just a little bit like physio, right? I think that there is a lack of understanding of the role of occupational therapists. And I think focusing on so many multifaceted areas of an individual, I think that that does make it difficult to understand sometimes exactly what our role is and where we fit into the bigger picture. So I think that it is important for us to be demonstrating that through good practice on our units. I think some of the most valuable experiences I've had for promoting the role of OT have been when other disciplines have stood up and said, oh, hey, you know, I need an OT colleague here. I can't do this on my own. I I need somebody here to look at this cognition with me. I need somebody to look at this. I need somebody to look at that. So I think it's really valuable for us to promote our role in the wider MBT to get that understanding so that people can advocate for us being there as well because there's enormous benefits to your patient, but also enormous benefit to our colleagues if they can't get somebody to engage in rehabilitation with them because of a cognitive impairment or because of an upper limb impairment or some sort of positioning challenge that they're having with the patient. So, you know, recognising that an OT can come in and assist with that for them to get better outcomes too. I think you've already alluded to one of the common misconceptions about, you know, you're just a little bit of a physio. What other sort of common misconceptions and misunderstandings do you, do you think there are? People think that we work for occupational health. We're going to do um, a job centre clinic. There's always that histrionic memory of OTs in World War Two, you know, making baskets and um, working in wood shops. I think our history hasn't helped us, and we haven't promoted ourselves well as a profession. But I think now, kind of like Lauren said, I think we've gone back to basics as a profession. And we know that activity and engagement and purposeful activity is really important. And you can do that in any setting. And because we are uniquely trained in psychological, cognitive and physical rehabilitation, we're the perfect profession to have in critical care. It's such a mixed cohort population with lots of different needs. We are a perfect profession to support, screen and triage these patients' needs. And like Lauren said, because we're really good at key working and coordinating cases, we're really good at looking at areas of dysfunction so we can pull in others as well. 
And that's what this cohort of patient needs. Is there anything or are there any sort of take-home messages that, that you really want to get across to the people listening? If there's doctors, if there's senior nurses listening to this podcast, this is an opportunity for you to open the doors of ICU. Invite your colleagues, invite your occupational therapists in because it's not an environment that we'll naturally be aware of or feel comfortable in. So it's an opportunity to invite them into your MDTs to see kind of what benefit that they can offer your patients because they will be able to offer quite a lot to your patients. But it's this point now, it's a tipping point to see if we can get people in. So we need to encourage them to, to come through the doors.